can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Wow, it's hard to believe it, but we're into our seventh Football Insiders podcast, which of course is the podcast home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. In previous episodes, we've heard from Trevor Thompson, Jason Goldsmith, Andrew Howe, Texi Smith, Peter Kunz, and last week, a little bit of change of pace with Simon Hill and Archie Fraser. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Professor John Maynard, who, as you'll hear, is a wonderful storyteller. He published the second updated and revised edition of the Aboriginal Soccer Tribe in September last year with Fair Play Publishing, with the first edition being published around about eight or nine years ago. As well as being a mad, keen football fan, and I'm told a pretty good player in his own day, John is actually the Professor of Indigenous Education and Research at the University of Newcastle. He is a Warramai Aboriginal man from the Port Stephens region and gained his PhD in 2003 examining the rise of early Aboriginal political activism. He's written a number of books in the area of his academic interests, which is around the intersections of Aboriginal political and social history and the history of Australian race relations, as well as several books on Aboriginal people and sport. He does so much and he's on so many committees and his most recent one, he's just been appointed to the Prime Minister's panel to judge books on history and nonfiction. And he's told me he's got 130 books he has to read to go through with that. But you can find out more about John on our author's page at fairplaypublishing.com.au. So it's time to grab a coffee and have a listen as we chat to Professor John Maynard. John, welcome. Thanks, Bernard. A pleasure. Um, last time we saw one another, it was a very warm February day. It was pre-COVID and you and I kicked off the conversation waiting for the meeting to start talking about the state of the game. I was feeling quite bullish about it, feeling quite positive, and you were the opposite. A few months on, three months on, um, how are you feeling now? And with COVID intervening, how are you feeling about it now? Devastated. I think it is such a depressing state for the game in this country. And um, I guess you can say I had my crystal ball, which has been there for the past three years, and maybe people will be calling me Nostradamus that I can predict the future. But the reality is um, I think the game over the last three years has descended and continues to run downhill at a rapid pace into self-destruction. I mean, we're seeing now that um, the discussion, which has been ongoing for some time, um, Fox pulling out of um, television coverage and, and that funding is is up for um, contention. Um, Hyundai pulling out of their, what is it, 15 years of support. Um, I mean, to me, the game is, is devoid of um, attracting funding um, at, at, a, at a top level. We've never been able to attract the attention positive attention of the media, and this all feeds into that negative media coverage, um, which is a long, long history. And I think um, the game in the last three, four years has not only shot itself in the foot, it's shot itself in the head. And um, I've never been so depressed with the outlook into the future. There's too many players pushing and pulling um, in different directions there is no leadership. 
um, as far as the game is concerned. Um, there's lots of broad ideas of people putting up these, what they see as are exciting ideas. But um, to me, there's no money there. I mean, we can talk about, I know the, the funding at, in state levels and all that sort of stuff. To me, that's still chicken feed when you compare it to rugby league and AFL and um, the other codes of what they can attract and the support they can gain from um, not just the media, but government. I mean, you know, we're not even a secondary consideration in that regard. We don't have a connection at that top level where people will take the game seriously and under consideration to see it supported. Um, it's a depressing outlook, a depressing future. Wow, okay. <laughs> so you're still feeling the same way as you did in February. I, I, I am absolutely. I'm worse. I'm worse now in this COVID in this COVID situation. Where is the news happening on the game at the moment? You know, you see rugby league and AFL are on TV every night. You can see in the newspapers there's four or five pages about rugby league and AFL, and we're about five pages in. If you get anything in the newspapers or on the television, there is nothing happening at club level on their websites. There is nothing happening at the uh, Football Federation Australia website. There doesn't appear to be anything taking place. I mean, people need to get off their bums and actually make something happen. We need some real people into these spaces to really, um, you know, not just save the game, but bring about major change. But the big stumbling block to me is financial um, support and where that is ever going to come from now, I have no idea. And uh, it's not looking a, uh, a positive future for me. I don't know if you've got some better news than me, Benita, but I mean, <laughs> I'm, but I'm ready to go for the bottle. <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. But um, I, I, absolutely critical is financial support and, and what the whole COVID situation more broadly does mm. is make that difficult for everyone, whether it be big major professional sports or small Absolutely. grassroots clubs or, you know, the Football Writers yeah. Festival, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, from, yeah. From, it doesn't matter what it is or, you know, um, Indigenous academies or, or whatever it may be. Whatever it be. I, you know, I, look, it's, a change, it's a change landscape. I mean, we've all got to recognise that. We're living in a historic moment. It's impacting on the English Premier League. The NBL and, in, um, NBA and um, basketball in the United States. I mean, every major sporting, Tokyo Olympics, I mean, for goodness sake, everything has been impacted in. But it's not just that with football in this country today. You can see this has been happening for the past three or four years, if not five or six years. The reality is it's been a slow burner, but it's this has really brought it to the fore, and the reality is there doesn't seem to be any direction how to get us out of the mire we're in. And, um, you know, that's what bothers me. Yeah, arguably it's even been longer than five years. I mean, in a sense, I think... Um, we had a veneer of everything being held together okay. But if you look at things like, um, you know, the changes in, in equity uh, over the past 20 years, it, it, it actually hasn't changed that much in the game and, the, and how much assets the games has hasn't changed much. So we didn't use the best part of the last 15 years, which was the first 10 years, we didn't use that to really grow the game as much as we could have. And, yep. and in fact, you know, one of the things about some of the sponsors that we had, uh, Hyundai's a, an 
a global sponsor for the sport. Mm. Um, mm. And some of the other sponsors were just mates and they mm. uh, of the of the then um, chairman and mm. they ended up with a place on the board. So that can happen. Mm. But, you know, I, I know some people have been critical of this view, but of the top 250 companies in Australia, um, mm. we tapped into about seven of them. So there are actually 243 others. That's the only thing mm. I would say, and, and that gets back to one of the issues that you raised about the leadership and people doing things. And I, I think one of the issues at the moment is that we're not hearing that much um, mm. about what's yeah. going on, and so yeah. there is a bit of a vacuum there. Yeah, we, we, we need a spokesperson to be up front right now at this critical point in time. And I know um, Johnson is the, the new head of FFA. I mean, and for all, um, from what I understand, a really top appointment. But he needs to be a lot more vocal in the space or someone needs to be vocal in the space to really um, raise a voice like Volandis has been doing for rugby league at this present yes. point in time. I mean, Volandis is, Volandis is probably going to save rugby league. I mean, and what's clear now that they were in financial trouble as well. I mean, the clubs were being mismanaged and yet someone like Volandis has come in um, and really, you know, put a blowtorch to this and really... Um, made things happen and got lots of media attention and television coverage. There's none of that for us. And yeah, I mean, it's, a fasc- it's a fascinating point. I mean, he hasn't yeah. been afraid to kick heads. Whether yeah. you agree with what he's done or not, um, he's yeah. actually saved the game, as you said, because I heard him on the news this morning saying he, yeah. that six, six of the clubs would have gone under. Uh, absolutely. And he did the same thing for race in New South Wales. But where's that person for us? Where's that person... Um, um, who's going to have um, that sort of um, commitment and that sort of power and sub- certainly gain that sort of coverage. I mean, uh, and I mean, I know we have now the A-League clubs are supposed to be running their own show. I mean, that is the case, I'm, as I believe, but it's still falling back or they're relying back to the uh, FFA now. And I mean, in this, in this moment of crisis, I mean, um, and if six rugby league clubs were ready to go, I wonder what the number is of A-League clubs at this present moment in time. I mean, that's a scary thought because, you know, most of those clubs were under pressure before COVID. So um, scary time. I'd say all but Sydney FC, Western Sydney Wanderers, Melbourne City and Melbourne Victory would be my guess. But anyway, we should turn to your book (laughs) or one of your many books, but particularly the the Aboriginal Soccer Tribe, which um, was published in its second and updated and revised edition last year by Fair Play Publishing. Um, What made you want to do a second edition? Uh, Look, I guess... um you know, it had been nearly, well, 10 years, uh, been 10 years or close to 10 years since I did the first edition, and it was just new material. It was also frustration uh, with me in regards to where, you know, the exciting opportunity and of bringing Indigenous involvement to the game just wasn't forthcoming, you know, and all the excitement and hype and, and sort of um, passion that I'd felt just after the launch of that book. And we had a number of players in the A-League, you know, Jade North and David Williams and Travis Dodd and Casey Weirman and, you know, um, um, a host of others, uh, Taj Minicon, um, James Brown, uh, Adam Serota. I mean, all came through in a period of about four or five years and you thought, man, this is, this is the big opportunity. They will be the guiding light to promote the game in our communities 
And I think the FFA and football in general failed in the opportunity it was there to really promote that. I know that Travis Dodd went out into communities and through the FFA and, and there was those uh, national competitions that they held a couple of times, but it was sort of like half-baked. I mean, the reality is it needed to be a big, full-on professional approach and needed to involve Aboriginal people on the ground, liaison officers into communities. The NRL and the AFL should have been the model to follow, and I know there was talk of doing that. Yes, we're going to follow those models, but it was never, ever really pursued in the sense of making that Aboriginal community connection for me and promoting it, promoting it in a big way. Um, and you needed to be on, you know, NITV and Koori Radio and, you know, um, Koori uh, Times and all the newspapers um, that, that we could foster in regards to that. But it was – the opportunity was lost. So I guess it was that frustration that saw me invent that frustration through the book as well as update a number of other stories as well and history as part of the, the new book. Now, that certainly comes out very clearly in the book is, is about how your disappointment and mm. and um, your blueprint for how it could be fixed. But let's yeah. just go back to the book a little. Um, there are several aspects in the book that are just wonderful to read, but I, I think the one that everyone's always very surprised at is just how early um, Aboriginal people were playing the game. Um, yeah. Can, you know, and, there were, and there were a couple of stars pretty early on. Yeah, Can you tell absolutely. us about those? Yeah, well, Bondi Neal is certainly one of the really standout um, and a representative goalkeeper. And, you know, from the first book, there was more material come to the fore in which um, uh, Bondi Neal's career was continued down on the south coast where he was originally from. So he must have been a Ewan Aboriginal man. So it was just the, the incredible stories and newspaper coverage that focused on this guy and uh, what a special sportsman he was, in particular, great goalkeeper. So, um, um, and Quilp, uh, another uh, fellow in Queensland, was a, was another individual that come to the fore. And there was a number of little snippets and stories of Aboriginal community involvement with representative games by boomerangs being presented to visiting overseas teams and um, all of that sort of stuff and opportunities of performing Aboriginal um, dances, you know, um, as part of international teams and Australian international teams and um, all of these sort of things to bring in Aboriginal culture at a very early stage. So, um, you know, I, I think those sort of things, there were great opportunities before even rugby league was played. You know, we think rugby league came in in 1907, but soccer or football was big in this country in the late, you know, 19th century. I mean, the coal mining centres of Newcastle and the Hunter and La Trobe and, and places in Queensland really had incredible opportunities to just to grab the ground floor, if you like, of as far as the game was concerned, and the opportunity that, was Yeah, that's been one of the consistent themes in, in these podcasts, you know, speaking yeah. um, with you now, with Peter Kunz, uh, with Andrew Howe um, uh, and with Trevor Thompson, it's all really clear that football or soccer was very strong in the 19th century and, and yeah. into the early 20th century and particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. And it's interesting yeah. to see that now with how 
the two states have developed in football because New South Wales is is overwhelmingly the biggest participation mm. sport, whereas Queensland is probably struggling to keep pace with its population, mm. um, you know, at, per capita. Um, mm. There, of course, there are three quite well known, very one one particularly famous, um, but three very well known wonderful players who also used football as a platform for political activism um, and in particular the the rights of Aboriginal people. Um, first amongst equals, of course, was Charles Perkins, but there's also John Moriarty and Gordon Briscoe. Mm. What, how can we measure their um, contribution to our country through football? And, and should football take a, take a bow as part of that? Yeah, ab- absolutely, and I mean it was the um, it was the acceptance those young guys received, certainly from in the wake of World War Two, and um, the migrant community coming into Australia, you know, after World War Two. I mean, and quite clearly in the interviews that I did um, with certainly Gordon and Johnny uh, and others, looking back to that time period was the acceptance that they gained and support they were given, you know, from new Australian um, communities, I mean, which they weren't getting from wider, wider Australia at that time. I mean, all of them showed promises AFL players. I mean, down in South Australia and Adelaide when they were at the St Francis home, I mean, and um, with a lot of other Aboriginal kids that, um, you know, been uh, taken from their families or placed into that home. Um, and yet they were, Gordon said to me, he said, we couldn't even use the same training shed, you know, um, um, as um, non-Indigenous Australians at that particular point in time. And they, and Johnny Moriarty is the one who said they, soccer became a game they played in that St. Francis home with a tennis ball, you know, and it may, on cement or, 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 um, or whatever in confined spaces. And it might have been five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. And he said it was that tight space where they were actually learnt the tight control of the ball, which was a tennis ball. Their, their skills the all developed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I, I, you know, I did the same thing because I played the game. I used to practice hitting a tennis ball against the back wall of my, my parents' home, which is a similar thing. And so it resonated with me and I trained myself to hit the ball with my left foot because I was a right footer. I, I just wanted to continue practicing with, uh, with the left foot. So I could empathize with these, these kids. I mean, what they were doing, but, and it was an outlet for them. I mean, it was, Johnny said they were playing from sun up and they were still playing under the, under moonlight until they were forced to, to go back into their dormitories or their rooms at St. Francis. So um, that's where that love of the game developed. And of course, that the famous game where they were uh, pitted against a South Australian youth representative team because it was, they were training next to the St. Francis home and they annihilated that, um, state team that was when they were young teenagers and there were people there from the top south australian clubs who uh, signed a lot of the kids up um, to play for them i mean port thistle i think it was i mean just off the top of my head with john and and charlie and uh, probably gordon and um and others um vince copley was another one and charlie's um brother as well as well that um played on that particular occasion um and wally MacArthur, of course the incredible gifted runner and the, later on the greatest rugby league winger in the world. Um, they all played. So signed up and uh, it was that support. And again, it was John Moriarty said that with when he eventually played with 
Juventus, he was taken to an Italian restaurants and he was fitted out in an Italian, by an Italian tailor in a designer suit, you know. And I mean, this was all just so overwhelming for these boys. It never experienced this level of acceptance. But also, um, those sorts of things. I mean, another thing with John, I mean, he first off said no. And then they said, look, we'll, we'll get your boots, we'll get your shirts. And he said, okay, then, all right. <laughs> so, you know. And yeah. and Charlie always said it was it was the acceptance of football that was the driver for him, and I think um, that acceptance socially uh, attuned him and equipped him uh, into that political space, and gave him the confidence to step forward. And um, you know, and I know Uncle Vince Copley said to me that Charlie was always the bravest man he'd ever seen in the face of racism and prejudice. But it was that acceptance in those communities, you know, the the Italian, the Greek, the Hungarian, the Macedonian, the Croatian communities, the Polish communities, the Dutch communities who were all in and around those clubs that provided that sort of acceptance and um, and um, encouragement and support that um, brought these guys out. Yeah, fa- fascinating. Um, um the, the link between the confidence and the acceptance and being able to go to get on and do other things. That's um, mm. a great mm. great lesson for everybody to take heed of. You've, sure. you've said that growing up um, your own hero was Harry Williams. Um, yep. what, are, what are your sort of best memories of him as a player? Well, certainly, I mean, uh, I watched Harry um, quite a few times. I'd go down to Sydney on the train and to watch Australia play and I saw a lot of the games in the lead-up to the 74 World Cup games against Iraq, Indonesia, New Zealand, South Korea. Um, and I'd seen Harry and a number of times prior to that um, from 1970 when he went on the world tour. So I'd gone down and seen quite a few games uh, that Harry had played. But the big impact for me was, um, you know, I, I was what, um, 16, uh, he would, 15 probably, when he played for St. George at Adamstown Oval. And I wrote about this in the book. It was a state cup match between St. George and, and Adamstown. And uh, Harry just stood out for me. It was incredible inspiration for, he's an Aboriginal guy. He was so skillful for a fullback. And it was just the speed of the guy. You know, and overlapping fullbacks were, you know, from 66 with the big go. And I mean, and Harry had speed to burn. I mean, I know that he used to win the, the, the races that were run at Wentworth Park between the runners of different codes, rugby league and soccer and um, might have been AFL, I forget, but there were a number of top sportsmen runners that elect someone to run at Wentworth Park. Harry used to win that race all the time. I um, mean, he was just electric. Um, so, yeah, that was the big inspiration that, that that in opening inspirational moment seeing. And you've got to think that St. George team, uh, Frank Arrock was the coach, brilliant coach. I mean, Manfred Schaefer, Johnny Warren, Adrian Alston, Mike Denton, um, um, Fraser, the goalkeeper, Alan Ainsley. And I mean, uh, there was just, it was just a super team. Um, well and, oh, super, super, super team. And um, I think they won that um, first international um, tournament in Japan that year as well. I mean, they were they were a fantastic team, and and to see Harry is just an integral part of that was just brilliant. So he was a great inspiration to me personally. 
Um, what's interesting too in, in the book is the Aboriginal Matildas. Um, yeah. Because I, I think, you know, we, we're all pretty much familiar with Lydia Williams and, and Kaya Simon, um, but they actually go back much further than that. And, you know, starting with Karen Menzies, who is your cousin, um, yeah. but there are a number of others as well, like Bridget Starr, Belinda Downey, et cetera. Um, mm. do, you, do you think that Aboriginal women um, got into soccer or football because of the issues that you mentioned in relation to uh, Gordon, John Moriarty and Charles Perkins? Um, was it about acceptance or was it because that's the sport that was available? What do you think that would be? I guess the, 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 there's a number of things in regards to that. I know in Karen's case, it was the game her foster brother and and kids in the street were playing, and um, and also that at that particular time she wasn't not even aware because she'd been removed from a family and placed into foster care that she was Aboriginal. So it wasn't the same motivation in that space. That certainly came to the fore later when she was made aware of who she was and what her background was. Um, but it was just, I guess, location. I mean, and it's still the case today uh, where um, football is the most widely played sport for kids. Um, but Karen, um, also at that time, there was a lot of trying to stop her play because she was a girl, I mean, which right. she fought railed against. And, um, you know, she, she was not going... Yeah, she was not going to be stopped. And when she was taken from that foster family and placed into the to the home in Newcastle, I mean, that's an interesting part of my my part of that story is that when she sat down and she was interviewed at the home, that she was told that they all had to play sport, and then uh, the uh, the home manager or whatever it was, um, you know, matron or whatever said. Um, and rattled off a few sports and then said soccer. And Karen said, soccer. <laughs> I want to play soccer. And, I mean, so – and she was a, a, an incredible player and an incredible um, athlete. So, I mean, she made an impact from a very young age. So – and I think, um, you know, that um, that was probably the case with, with many others in that regard. But it's interesting in that, that early period, you know, through the 70s, I wonder if, you know, Harry's presence may have influenced other – um, younger Aboriginal girls into the game because, I mean, he was there. Although I still think the um, well, the Australian Soccer Federation at that time, I mean, to me, they failed terribly in not promoting Harry Williams to the extent because Rugby League and AFL didn't hold the high ground at that point. And, no, I mean, they, they lost it. They, yeah. Yeah, they lost an incredible opportunity through Harry Williams if he had been promoted right across the country into our communities because you could have counted on two hands the number of rugby league and AFL players, Aboriginal, that had been allowed to get through and play the game at that level. And I will say, and I, I keep saying this in my conversation with the late, great Johnny Warren, that John said that he had proposed to the Australian Soccer Federation about 1970-71 because he was such a good friend with Charlie Perkins that the, the greatest untapped talent in the, uh, Australia today was in Aboriginal communities and all they had to do was go in with balls and shirts and coaches and you would reap the benefit. And he said, John, they ignored me. <laughs> you know, yeah. so what an incredible opportunity that would have been. I mean, Greg Inglis and Jonathan Thurston and, you know, Michael Long might have been soccer players. 
And as we know, Adam Goods was potentially a very good soccer player. So, you know, an athlete with an incredible engine, imagine what he would have been like uh, um, if he had pursued soccer um, as his career instead of uh, AFL. AFL. The the other thing that's interesting about the Matildas um, too in the early part, um, and this was obviously in the Encyclopedia of Matildas, which we'll talk about in another podcast, but... um, the very early Matildas were all of Australian background, either white Australian or in the case mm. of the place that you, you um, highlight, the Aboriginal Australians, there was very few Matildas of that time who were from non-English speaking backgrounds. Um, and that's very much a cultural thing. I can I say that as a as a daughter of a person <laughs> of yeah. non-English speaking background, you know, it just wasn't yeah. something that you did. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, might yeah. Play, but you wouldn't make a career out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 really interesting. I mean, I that's uh, you, you've got the insight for that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I find that I find that surprising. Certainly, from the uh, the the communities that we've mentioned that um, come from war torn Europe, in that that um, that's that's odd that they, there was not that support for their their, their for the girls. You know? Yeah, their daughters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's got to be for the boys, and that's it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, um, another another update in the book is around Islander players, um, and mm. you you highlight four in particular: um, Frank Farina, Archie Thompson, Tim Cale, and Mary Fowler. Um, mm. I, I think the one that surprised people most in that group was Frank Farina, and he's you know we've we've both heard him speak about that. Um, mm. What did you find out about his background and and you know that? Uh, how he came into the game, what that background was that helped him with that. Yeah, well, look, I mean, well, you did the book on Frank, I mean, which I which I called upon pretty heavily in regards to, to Frank's story and the picture of his mum, you know, and I had that book when you first published that, which was a surprise to me at that point. Oh, you're one of about ten. <laughs> <laughs> me, I supported you from a very early, you know, early stage. Thanks, you know, John. <laughs> you know, it was a great book. <laughs> but Frank, Frank, Frank had an incredible career and was one of those pioneers of, um, you know, not just Aboriginal but Australian players um, um, that went overseas and or Islander players that went overseas. And, I mean, he was one of those really pioneer players. But his background, I mean, and we've had discussions with Frank since as well, you know, and there, you know, with it, with, certainly with an Italian father, I mean, you can understand where the move come from to, to pursue an interest in the game. And he clearly had a lot of support. But from what I gained, uh, certainly from you uh, and certainly Frank, his mother was uh, an incredible sports woman, you know, and and it was uh, squash, as I recall. I believe so, yes, yeah. yeah and she was yeah, playing yeah. it up until very recently. Yeah, yes, in the seventies. So, um, so he had this sporting background, but um, he was someone that was clearly incredibly motivated and driven um, um, to do well in the game, and I mean, really pushed it to the limits and what you know um, where he could go. I mean, he didn't look. At, there was a lot of setbacks in Frank's career, even as a as a young player. And I mean, he never got selected in those Queensland of Academy or youth state teams originally. And it was only when he went to a, uh, I think it was Shoulder that saw him at a, a coach's training thing. I think they took him to the um, uh, AIS. Um, so he'd been overlooked. I mean, so you know that that was 
these obstacles placed in front of him, but he was one of those kids, and even as an adult, that no matter what happened, he was going to get there. And I mean, he, he worked incredibly hard at it. And um, yeah. It's a good lesson, I think, for young people who are not selected um, straight away in an elite pathway. It, 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 there's Frank, there are others as well um, around mm. the game who, you know, just because you're really good at 14 or 15 or 16 doesn't mean you're going to be at age 20 and beyond and vice versa as well. So it's, um, I, it's a salutary yeah. lesson. I, I totally agree. And again, I can draw on myself. I mean, and I said in the book, I couldn't kick a cow in the guts as a kid, you know, like um, I was useless. I mean, but constantly practicing with that tennis ball against my parents' backyard. And I mean, I was dribbling with the tennis ball. Um, and at 15, it suddenly all come into place. And when they brought in the under 16s for the what is now the Northern New South Wales Premier League, um, I was one of the players picked up by Zuri, Hamilton Zuri. I mean, and the kids that I'd played against here were all the rep players um, through my junior days. They were they didn't couldn't even get with the senior club, or they were playing second division or third division. And here I was, you know, with the senior club where I stayed for the, you know, until um, you know, nine, early nineteen eighties. Um, but it's it's practice, and I think that's one thing where we fall down today. I mean. I clicked on at 15, you know. Um, most of our kids, the juniors, disappear at 15. They go to other codes or they've lost interest in the game. So that is the that is the, the thing we've really got to focus on. And I think, um, you know, um, that's the main thing is development of youth and kids coming through and um, where the game really needs to do something. Um, in a big way. And that comes down to finance as well. It certainly wasn't the case in my time, but um, the costs, I mean, um, playing the game uh, for juniors is so exorbitant, um, yet we've still got the biggest numbers. Imagine what we'd get if it was reasonable. I mean, this is the barrier as well to Indigenous kids being and and other um, um, communities in the in the wider community that um, uh, don't have access to to greater finance and when you see these elite coaching programs they're only the wealthy and I, I said that in the book I mean great players don't come from double bay and Vaucluse the reality is you know they're the ones out in western Sydney in the back blocks that's where you're going to find your great players and that's the case anywhere in the world and they're the places you need to tap into and make the game viable and accessible and affordable um, to encourage involvement in the game and go on with it. Yeah, because as I said, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's where we lose most of the most of the talent that comes through at that particular critical age. And and worse than that too. Uh, I mean, as well as the cost of playing for juniors, yeah. um, if they are identified as being talented, if they can happen to get into you know afford to play in the first place. They then have to pay to take part in representative teams, which of course means, and and it's a way of the state, not every state federation, but it's a way of the state federations getting revenue. They charge these kids to to represent a state. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess it's easy for us to talk about, but something really does need to be done about it. Yeah, I think, and I mean, I'm. It's it's funny for me, you know, like um, with social uh, socialistic you know, tendencies, but to me, the sense of a dictatorship, we need a centralised control over the game 
um, in funding and direction of the game. There's too many splintered. I mean, the states and breaking all that down, it needs to be all centralised. Finances need to be all centralised and certainly some control over that. I mean, it's a... Um, I think there's a degree of um, greed and, um, you know, um, um, yeah, it, it's it's always been a part of the game in that respect. I mean, I think the centralised approach some way uh, needs to take charge here and um, some sort of leadership in that space because, you know, we're, we're, as I said in the beginning, we're in a dire situation at the moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to... Um close off now and, and ask you a question which we've been asking everybody and that is um, we're almost at the point where we can have people around for dinner um, but if you were able to have five people, any people, who would be the five that you'd invite? Oh, wow. The people alive or dead or? Preferably alive. <laughs> oh, no. oh, I was just, as a historian, there's quite a few people that I'd love to uh, to invite for dinner. Um Certainly, um, Michelle and Barack Obama, um, I think, uh, would be uppermost uh, on my uh, list. Um, Pele, um, certainly from a football uh, perspective. Um, Harry Williams, I'll bring Harry along for a feed as well. And uh, um, so there's my two football positions there. And... Um, um, What's her name? Um, um, Jacinda Ardern. Jacinda Ardern, uh, definitely. I wish she was leading us. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very similar list to someone else, I have to say. So Pele, Harry Williams, Michelle and Barack Obama and Jacinda Ardern would be a great group. Um, yeah. One other thing too, we're putting together a Football Insiders playlist. What are you listening yeah. to in, in terms of music at the moment? Oh well, most of my stuff is um, is is older music. <laughs> Look at it now. Um, Van Morrison, Neil Young, um, yeah, are the sort of music that uh, that I listen to. Um, Crowded oh, house. Oh, yep. I, okay, well, you you are putting yourself in a particular age group with those choices. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll we'll find something I think from Neil Young to close out today's show. Um, right. Thank you so much, John, for your time. We could talk all day, I'm sure, but we also need to keep some of it for when we are able to have a football writers festival because I know it'd be wonderful for so many people to meet you and hear from you in person. Um, so yeah. thank you very much for your time today, and look forward to catching up soon. Pleasure, Benita. Okay, great to speak. And that's it for Football Insiders this week. If you want to catch up on your football reading, there's no better time to do so and you can head to fairplaypublishing.com.au where there are not only a range of books on Australian football history, culture, biographies, fiction and memoir, but our new Play On magazine and the back catalogue of the Football Insiders podcast. I should mention also that Play On magazine is now available at the App Store. In the meantime, stay safe and maintain your social distance. And if you're from Queensland, even further social distance, we're going to close with a brief excerpt from Neil Young, one of John's choice of music. We'll be back next week with another Football Insiders podcast. Until then, happy listening.
Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.